0: You know, I've been very clear, uh, as I was when I wrote the initial audit in 2018, Um, this system does not perform. Um, And it is not because people are not good at their jobs. It is because the architecture of the system doesn't actually support them in doing their
1: jobs. Well, you're listening to Mark Dones right there, CEO of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, talking about a multi-billion dollar overhaul to our response to homelessness, a plan just released by that agency. So where's that money supposed to come from? Plus, how's a battle at the state level over a capital gains tax going to end up? And what's the future of bike and transportation infrastructure in Seattle going to look like? Well, we are covering this ground and so much more on Seattle News, Views, and Brews. This week, I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are mine. And my co-host is none other than David Croman of the Seattle Times. And David, I noticed a few days ago you came up with a brilliant plan for the Mariners this year. Don't let Robbie Ray pitch against the Astros, and we will be just fine. Those numbers are nuts, man. That was a crazy breakdown.
0: Yeah, I like that. Well, because I went to a few games where he pitched, and he pitched really well. Um, I think we all kind yeah. of ended the season uh, remembering the home run he gave up to Jordan Alvarez, which left yes. a bad taste in our mouth. But for much <laughs> of the season, he was actually really good. So, uh, you know, here's hoping that if we just avoid the Astros with him, then
1: we'll yeah. be somewhere yeah. close to his signing still. So. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Yeah. Well, thank you, David, as always, for your insights. Thanks also to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast on the first floor of Seattle City Hall. And a big thanks to our patrons, too. We are launching the Seattle News Views and Brews sticker campaign. Patrons who support us at the $5 level can get a super cool sticker, a badge of pride, I would say. I'm working on sending this out to all of our current members. Please have patience with me. But new folks, please jump in and support the show. Thanks very much. And a heads up from the Seattle Department of Transportation. With the below freezing temperatures this week, make absolutely sure you're keeping our sidewalks clear of ice if you can. Try to drive a little bit less if that's possible. Get yourself stocked up on groceries. Could be an unsettled next couple days ahead. Be ready for some challenges in that forecast. You can learn more at seattle.gov slash winter dash weather. Thanks to SDOT and thanks also to Converge Media for airing the video version of this podcast Wednesdays at 7 o'clock. All right, off we go with right here, right now. Well, David, this new five-year plan to end homelessness from the King County Regional Homelessness Authority has a price tag of $8 billion in capital costs. That's up front. Then another $3.5 billion per year to operate after that. Local officials are looking at this right now. They're supposed to be weighing in and revamping this proposal over the next couple of months. They'll finalize this in April but that's an incredibly steep price hike when you think about this. This agency, its budget right now is about two hundred and fifty three million dollars, a million with an M there. Where's where's this funding model actually gonna end up? What do you think?
0: I, I think it's not gonna end up anywhere close to three and a half billion dollars per year. I mean that's what was Seattle's budget this last year, an entire budget. Right. It was Yeah, uh, exactly. More like seven. Something. Yeah. Like it was six billion. Yeah, six yeah. or seven billion. You know, so it's Fifty percent of the entire city of seattle's budget you know that said i it doesn't surprise me because mark dones from the beginning when dones took took charge of the agency has said uh i'm i'm gonna tell you what we need to do i'm not gonna they, they sort of promised not to politic uh the solutions at all that they would be very upfront about what they thought it would cost to fix homelessness and so um, this is what we're seeing is don't yeah. saying, uh, if you want to actually get real about solving homelessness, this is what it's going to take. You know, the political yeah. reality is almost certainly this isn't going to get funded in this way. Um, right. But you know, it's interesting to have this number out there as a, as a point of reference. It, you know, we, I remember yeah. a few years ago when McKinsey came out with their report yes. and saying, mm-hmm. what was it? A billion a year or something. People sort of mm-hmm. gawked that this right. is yeah. half times that, um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Yeah. It's it's a certainly a starting point. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And you look at this, this $253 million budget, the city of Seattle actually is the authority's largest funder when you think of it that way, $95 million. And I know they're talking with the RHA to figure out what happens next here. But in looking at some of the details of this plan, the biggest shift that I saw, David, was the amount of shelter beds that the RHA wants to provide from about 37-some-odd hundred units right now to over 10,000. And my question, as always on this when it comes to resources, is where? I mean, even if they did have the money to do this, I'm just thinking of that major pushback we saw in the Chinatown ID neighborhood this past year over the expansion of an enhanced shelter. And that was adding just 150 units to an already existing shelter. Where the heck are 6,000-plus units of shelter going to go? Some thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I I think... That is probably almost as challenging as the three and a half billion. Um, As the dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Right. uh, As as we've all seen, you know, massive neighborhood pushback. As you know, you alluded to the Chinatown International District, but you know, even more just regular market rate housing in people's neighborhoods. Let alone um, shelter, emergency shelter. So um, Mm -hmm. it's a it's a really good question that I don't have have the answer to. We, We I'm trying to think of parallels. I mean, there was the Talk around safe consumption sites. Um, yes, right. Which of course, mm-hmm. those never went anywhere. In large part, I mean, heroin users, country. people addicted to opioids. Yeah, right. keep going. Uh, I mean, it was you know politically obviously very controversial, but I think probably that the biggest barrier to that ever getting off the ground was no one could ever find where to put it. And i a similar, I yeah. think that going to be a similar struggle with this
1: yeah did you have any other questions about this, David? I know it's been a big headline that a lot of people have been looking at over the past week or so here. When you looked at this, was there uh, other than sticker shock? was there a reaction to, to what you saw there
0: Um I mean, yeah, a reaction was that's a really big number, and my second <laughs> reaction was um, i don't I don't know that that's ever going to get funded. Um, but you yeah. know I, again, no, i think' yeah. it's, I think it's interesting because um this is an argument. You, you know, this is an argument uh, of some people. I would say more on the left end of the spectrum, and we heard this in the head tax, which is this argument that you know, in some ways, kind of the worst thing you can do. They they argue is go halfway there with the funding because right. mm-hmm. then you're going to get this this sort of dual issue of uh, sticker shock, people thinking you're spending a ton of money, and you're also not fixing the problem. Um, so, you know, I think this is, in some ways, a realistic look at what, you know, if you wanted to go the full way and actually um, be serious about totally eliminating homelessness, which everyone says is their goal, um, even if they're not acting like it. Right, uh, right. It's not, it, it doesn't strike me as, it doesn't strike me as... Um, far-fetched because building is really expensive and operating these housing housing units and providing the service is all very expensive.
1: Yes. Yes. Very true. It's uh, right. I know it's been that number one issue for voters for so long and what's being presented now is a very stark and real look at it and it has a dollar figure attached to it too. So definitely something we'll be watching over the next couple of weeks as officials weigh in on this and we kind of sort out what this budget is actually going to be come April. So very interesting to look at that. And I wanted to make sure I pointed out, folks, there isn't a ton of stuff jumping out at me from the Seattle City Council agendas for this week. But there was one issue for the Finance and Housing Commission, uh, Committee, I should say, on Tuesday that I thought was very interesting. I like tracking this issue because it's one of those very, I don't know what else to say other than interesting issues for the City Council when it comes to the sugary beverage tax. So this is that tax on sugar-sweetened drinks in Seattle, 1.75 cents per ounce. And from what I've seen so far, david, studies show that it's it's doing the job people are buying fewer sugary drinks, but the part of it that always comes to me is, is it clear that there are actually increased health benefits from there It's just so difficult to measure and make that causal connection between okay, here's the sugary drink tax and here's the health outcomes I know this is a this is a bit of a fraught issue for the city council david
0: yeah definitely and and it's also gotten more muddy because. You know, the basic goal of this is, as you said, to increase health outcomes. At least that's how it was sold, that, you know, yes. the money coming in would go to fund uh, programs that would, you know, in in theory, when it was sold, the success of this would be when, you know, it, it was, it evaporated, when people basically weren't drinking soda Right, form. right. But when budget times get tough, now it's mm-hmm. sort of being used as a revenue source, you know, which really yeah. is not what it was passed to be. A, a mm-hmm. actual source of something for the city council to you know fill gaps and things like that. But right. It's, it's kind of become that, I think maybe a little bit more, you know, I don't track mm-hmm. these issues quite as closely as I used to, but, uh, my right. sense is basically any sort of discretionary revenue that's coming in the door the city council and the mayor are happy to, put yeah. to use, um, but then, it. The yeah. is, yeah. then the issue is, then the issue it's, is it's being put to use. And, um, if it is yeah. successful, then you've got to fill that cap somewhere else. So, exactly. yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's a confusing it's a confusing source. The goals of it, I think, are um, sometimes confusing for the public.
1: Agreed. And I think the other conundrum behind this, and you were starting to go down this path, David, the soda tax revenue is actually falling. It's down another $4.5 million this past year. And so I guess that's not a bad thing. Maybe it means that fewer people are drinking sugary soda, et cetera. But in terms of this being a funding source for programs that support the health of of vulnerable communities. It just doesn't seem that stable. And I try to think about the long-term fate of this tax. If indeed the goal is to try to get it to a point where it's, it's lower and people are not drinking these sugary beverages at all, then that, that really doesn't help these health programs in the long run either.
0: Yeah. Right. Again, um, it's, it's where using taxes to eliminate the behavior or to tamp down on a behavior Uh, can get a little tricky sometimes because again if your goals are successful that revenue source goes away so you got to be careful to not uh build a house on the foundation of a sugary tax that's in theory supposed to go away but you know there's so much there's so much turnover on the city council that i I, who is (laughs) yeah good point probably know off the top of my head better than i will but you know a lot of the people who pass this tax aren't on the council anymore so the new people are a very
1: good point money
0: coming in and Probably, yeah. Think well. Hey, why we should put this to use?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. And there's going to be some more turnover. I know at the end of this year. So this is something that's gone through a lot of different iterations. And uh, yeah, you don't want to build your house on sand. You don't want to build your, build your house on sugar either. I think that's a yeah. <laughs> very important point that you that you raised there, David. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the weeks to come. I know. But up next, will our state's capital gains tax survive a challenge? in the Washington State Supreme Court. We're looking at some possibilities on, now hear this. Well, moving on to a key issue in the State Supreme Court right now, these deliberations going on right now, is Washington's capital gains tax unconstitutional? Governor Jay Inslee, he doesn't think so. And he says this capital gains tax is actually an important step towards making our state's overall tax structure a lot less regressive. It is inexcusable that working people have to pay five or times more of their hard-earned income than people at the top who are, you know, multimillionaires. That is just morally indefensible. Well, David, we are not attorneys, but I know this is the big question that everybody's wrestling with, including the state Supreme Court here. What do you make of these arguments? That this is either an income tax, a tax on income that would be illegal through our state constitution, or an excise tax on a transaction like a sale of stocks? This is a real test for the state Supreme Court any ideas on this and where they're shaken down
0: yeah I I mean um, where it's shaking down I think um, I think if you probably took a poll people might sort of lean towards them saying this is unconstitutional but that said they uh, the the Supreme Court, allowed has allowed collections to begin on
1: this tax so that might tell you yeah it's going to happen in february they're going to start collecting it Mm -hmm.
0: right so that tells you that there's at least a chance i mean if they thought there was no chance i'd be surprised you know like when a Mm -hmm. federal judge or something issues an injunction or a temporary stay that usually says that the judge anticipates ruling that way in the end i i think Mm -hmm. i Mm -hmm. I, you know it's hard to peer into the chambers of the supreme court but I would think right. if they thought it had no chance, they would not have allowed collections to go forward because that's yes. that's going to be a really complicated thing to collect and then refund taxes if it is unconstitutional. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know, um, the 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 point that the opponents of this tax make is that, and and I think they have a point, is that capital gains at basically everywhere else in the country are considered income tax, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. income tax is not constitutional nor legal in. Uh, Washington State, and so their right. their argument is basically: you, you look at what the rest of the country thinks of this, and yeah. therefore you know it's silly yeah. to think of this any other way. The the yeah. state, though, you know, is really focusing on the fact that you don't get taxed on these capital gains until you make a transaction, until you sell the actual stocks, and therefore right. it is an excise tax. Again, I can right. I can see I can see merits to both of those arguments. So, uh, as yeah. you alluded to, we're not lawyers, so I yeah. don't know the answer. Yeah, but, right. Right. Um, it'll, it'll, you know, and and this is a, you know, frankly, this is a very progressive Supreme Court. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they have taken some big leaps at things. Um, yeah. The really big, interesting thing would be, you know, the lawyer made a couple. You know, lawyers always make a couple arguments. They make their primary argument and then a backup. Right. Argument right. Say, mm-hmm. if you don't agree with that first one, maybe try this one on for size. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 And so the lawyer for the state, I think it was lawyer for the state, maybe it was one of the other lawyers, said. Um, there, there's you know, a few that are kind of
1: supporting tax. the case. Yeah, keep going. Right.
0: You know, we think this is an excise tax, and so therefore it's legal. But if you, if you disagree with us and you do think it's an income tax, then, hey, Supreme Court, why not go back and strike down this precedent entirely and make income tax legal uh, or, or constitutional in Washington state? That would be yeah. really interesting. And there have, been, <laughs> there have been examples. I think of the Blake case. where the, yes, the, with the drugs. With drugs, um, you know, basically striking down the state's drug possession lawsuit Where the the judges leapfrogged the lawyer's uh, primary argument and went to his secondary argument, which was this sweeping call to strike down the entire drug statute. And they took that Mm -hmm. step, even to the surprise of the guy who argued um, that that was a possible avenue. So, uh, you know, it's I I don't know that you can rule anything out um, on any of these angles with the Supreme Court.
1: No, no, I don't think so either. And I think it's important to point out that whole issue of actually a situation where you were saying it's uh, they leapfrogged the legislature on that Blake decision here. I look at what the legislature is doing. I mean, this is a decision by the Supreme Court that is not in a vacuum here. There's a wealth tax being discussed in the legislature this session as well, what's being called a margin tax, basically, allowing business owners some deductions on their taxes, which would replace the state business and occupation tax. I guess, is this the year that our state actually makes some substantial changes to a tax structure that is almost 100 years old?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is the year that they'll try, um, especially yeah. Seattle area legislators. Um, a lot of them, you know, almost to a T, all of them, if you ask why they're running, they say tax reform. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they're, they're going to try, I mean, even, I would say any of these taxes, uh, are probably a long way from actually bringing in revenue, or if they do start bringing in revenue, you know, if this ta- if this capital gains survives, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me even in the slightest if a referendum, as a, you know, initiative was run to repeal it. Um, yep. Same with if an income tax or wealth tax was passed, you know, the the word tax is still not a popular word um, in <laughs> in Washington. Theater. Anywhere it doesn't yeah. poll very well, mm-hmm. uh, right. and so you know. I think I think even if the state or the court decides with the state on this one I I don't think it's the end of this by any stretch because there are more political avenues for the opponents to to take to try and stop this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Very good points all made there and we'll see what happens with the state supreme court again. The state's supposed to start collecting collecting this capital gains tax in February and they'd have to pay back those amounts with interest if the court ends up uh, saying that these are indeed uh, unconstitutional taxes being uh, collected there. I I did want to talk about another case on my radar here at the state level, David, and this is a bill that would establish a missing and murdered indigenous people cold case unit. So there's another hearing on this in Olympia on Thursday of this week, but some voices on law enforcement have been pushing back on this one, saying this requirement could jeopardize other cold cases out there. So just the background on this, folks, this is a program that would be funded by the Attorney General's office and would use some expertise from AG investigators who are not police officers. It just, it was an interesting back and forth here, David. It just seems like a situation where there's this kind of quasi-civilian unit moving into these different police departments to try to figure out what's going on. And that's thats not always a recipe for success, that kind of combination. No, yeah. Um, police
0: officers famously don't love being told what to do or what should be prioritized um, outside of their departments. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously this issue has gotten a ton of attention, rightfully so. And um, Mm -hmm. this is a response to that. Um, You know, anytime that one group of people is sort of made priority, of course, you, there tends to be arguments, you know, you think of affirmative action, there tends to be arguments that it is that it's a kind of a zero sum game that uh, focusing on a certain type of case or a certain, a group of people sort of therefore neglects other cases or other people. I don't know if that's, I I don't, I don't know enough about the workload capacity of uh, attorney generals or police departments to know if that's true or not. Um, But the reality is, you know, uh, indigenous people and women in particular, are way more vulnerable to um, this issue than other groups of people. So, you know, yeah. uh, from that perspective, it makes sense to have a focus.
1: Well, yeah, and just to dovetail on that idea, David, we saw some good energy when it comes to the missing, murdered, and indir- indigenous persons crisis in our state last year. The legislature established this new system a lot like Amber Alert. So we'll see postings on a freeway rear board, for example, when there's an MMIP case that officers need help with. The AG's office has this task force now to deal with this issue. I just think about the scope of this crisis. Our state, Unfortunately, is infamous for having the second highest number of MMIW cases in the country. The Indigenous women, uh, we've looked at that number quite a bit, and I'm not sure what's going to happen with this cold case project. But I guess what I'm seeing is definitely a lot more energy around this issue over the past few years than we've seen in some time, wouldn't you say?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, that's thanks. I think to advocacy by you know young people. We see the kind of protests with the. Um, red hand on on yep. people's faces, mm-hmm. and uh, there was the report out of the National Indian Health Board. I think it was um, mm-hmm. that that carried a lot of weight. And you know, there's a lot of yes. um, one of the kind of main researchers there is Abigail Echohawk, who lives in Seattle, right? So just done work on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that uh, work. There was some work that had been done that was maybe sitting around for a while that got good publicity um, and good press, and so really kind of kicked this into gear.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And needed to be kicked into gear. This is an issue that has been languishing, I know, for a lot of time, for many, many years. And seeing the state and the city working on it is a very interesting thing to see, and I'm uh, gratified by it, too. So appreciate you breaking those pieces down with me here, David. All right. Working on our next story here. What is the future of bicycling? What's it going to look like in Seattle? City leaders actually want your input. We're going to discuss what's happening with that, other parts of the transportation plan, too, for the city of Seattle. That's coming up on Transportation Talk david i saw a recent piece in the seattle bike blog about an ongoing quest for input about bicycle infrastructure in the city of seattle the city's actually looking for your insight folks at city hall in the bertha knight landis room four to seven o'clock on january 31st there's also an online survey from sdot about the seattle transportation plan overall that's open through february 21st i just wanted to get your take on this david the transportation plan has a big flashy name to it here. I'm just trying to figure out where we are with it. And are there any changes coming to our bike infrastructure anytime soon? What do you think?
0: Um, well, yeah, the transportation plan, it's sort of, um, you know, kind of like the comprehensive plan, but for transportation, yes. um, we're kind of still in the uh, information gathering stage. Uh, right. It sort of sets out the city's priorities. You know, um, you know, the city has a history of making Sort of promises on bike infrastructure, and then oftentimes those have gotten delayed or pushed back. But at the same time, there has also been like there's been quite a bit of addition too, uh, you know, on Fourth Avenue new bike lane and kind of South Lake Union. And um, so, uh, you know, I think for advocates of bicycling, um, there have you know they can point to some projects that are seen as wins, but also there's a kind of sense that bike projects are are the ones that make it to the bottom of the while, yeah. Uh, yeah, and are therefore often pushed back the most yeah. with some high profile examples, you know, there's, um, Burke Gilman missing link trail, mm-hmm. of course, which yep. has been going on for decades. And, yeah, uh, you know, talk of, you know, especially as people get hit in Soto talk of bike lanes between Georgetown yeah. and Soto, you know, um, that's taking, uh, a long time. And so, um, mm. it'll be interesting. You know, I think Greg Spotts is the S dot director. He'll be kind right. of an interesting horse mm-hmm. in S in the city, um, Mm-hmm. He seems to sort of um, talk, uh, talk a talk a urbanist game, a good urbanist yeah. game. You know, he doesn't have mm-hmm. a car and so walks around and takes his bike and stuff. How much that'll transfer right. into what
1: is actually built? Um, we'll yeah. see. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm just looking at. Is there a spot you've heard rumblings about? Oh, the next next big thing is going to go here when it comes for bikes or what have you. I know there's so many projects that are crying out for help here. I know Tammy Morales down in District 2 on the City Council has been calling for a lot more infrastructure there. Do you is there a spot that jumps out at you where boy there's a glaring need and maybe there maybe there's a possibility that that's going to happen?
0: Uh as far as the second part I'm not sure, but I think the glaring need is 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 Soto um and yeah uh to Georgetown. Uh yeah. that's just such a you know there's the bike lane on along the water that you know you can buy the port and stuff, but it's really i think some people call it kind of a garbage the garbage bike lane because it's not the the barriers aren't very strong you know it's not a protected bike lane and there's so much covered with garbage (laughs) yeah exactly there's you're like 50 percent chance you get a flat tire riding on that thing um (laughs) yeah and you know so many people have been hit and and killed in soto in particular um it's actually you know it's one place where there's actually some agreement between you know the kind of industrial community and the bike community. That there should be better bike infrastructure going through there. You know where and how that is. That's going to be a fight. But um, yeah. I think that you know, to Tammy Morales's point, it's just such a such a hot spot that uh, cries out for some kind of protection. Of course, the other one of is is Rainier. Um, yeah, totally. You know the how you do that. That's that's tough because. Rainier is what it is. It's a big arterial. Um, mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see how much appetite the city has to, you know, put protected bike lanes on Rainier Avenue as they yeah. start stand right now. If you want to kind of follow that route, it's a really mm-hmm. zigzagging, you know, you're kind of crisscrossing Rainier and you're going through neighborhoods. Yes. and It's mm-hmm. really pretty indirect. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're of the mind that bike routes should be as efficiently operating as car routes are, then, um, that there aren't really great options down there. So yeah, yeah, I would say in general, South Seattle, um, plus then some of the projects that we've talked about for decades, like missing link.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. And Soto too, another interesting overlay there, that area of town is now part of district one, the West Seattle district there where Lisa Herbold is leaving and a new council member will be coming in. So their purview, including that neighborhood. So Some interesting points ahead there, and thank you, David, for checking that out. And, folks, if you do want to get involved with this online survey, make sure you go to SDOT's website, check out the transportation plan, and get your words in there. Very important that you do that. Uh, We need to wrap up here, David, and I have to say I have a gardening confession I need to make to you, and I think you're the right guy to hear it. I just wanted some advice. So there we were, had a nice garden bed in our backyard. We cleared off all these heaps of leaves off the thing, and we found one of our old Halloween pumpkins there definitely super (laughs) duper scary looking now because it's so moldy and kind of caved in i was thinking about scooping it up dumping it in the compost bin one of my kids should have done that earlier that was a failed job on their part but should i just leave it there will we see a bumper crop of pumpkins coming in some thoughts on that
0: yeah gourds and pumpkins have a way of seeding uh reseeding really easily so if you leave it there i can almost guarantee you will get uh, new pumpkins which um is is sort of fun, but also you don't want to let it take over. They can get weedy. And then the, the real thing that can happen, this this is actually very interesting. I know we don't have a lot of time, but uh, down, squashes, hybrid, squashes hybridize really easily. So if a bee pollinates one and then pollinates another, and then that the seed of that fruit is going to create a new strain, which uh, is sort of fun to find, except for that sometimes what can happen is it there will be a toxin that comes in the fruit, oh. and so you shouldn't actually eat. You know, you might get a hybrid of a couple of edible strands of squash, but then okay. the, new, the new breed can make you really sick. So uh, let it go if you want to see an adventure, but don't eat it.
1: That's awesome. This is why I ask, David. Thank you so much, as always, for for your advice on everything news-wise and garden-wise and everything else in between. Thank you so much, David. And thanks to everybody listening to Seattle News, Views & Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you might like to listen. And please do find Seattle News, Views & Brews on Patreon and show your support. Thanks for watching on Converge Media 2. We'll see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2023.